So this year on uh, this first Sunday of Lent, we get Mark's very brief account of Jesus' journey into the wilderness. Uh, It's so brief that we include Jesus' baptism as well. It'd be sort of strange to just have about three verses, wouldn't it? Um, Certainly we can backfill the story with the details that we get from Matthew and Luke, but I think there's actually more in Mark's brief account than meets the eye, precisely because what we see is this immediate connection between his baptism and his wilderness temptation. And the first thing I want to draw your attention to uh, is the urgency and even the forcefulness of Mark's language. He says the heavens were torn open. And as Mark likes to do, he says immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. We don't need to read past that. It's important. This moment in Mark's language, it draws on the prophetic prayer in Isaiah 64 that cries out, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's what the Lord is doing right here. It's as though the skies, like the rebellious and resistant world itself, they are confronted by the inbreaking of divine action and authority. But we notice that the Spirit doesn't come through that rip in the sky like a thunderbolt, does He? The Spirit doesn't move like a mighty rushing wind as in Acts 2 either. Instead, in all four Gospels, the Spirit descends and alights upon Jesus like a dove. And Luke's gospel even spells it out by saying the Spirit descended on him somatikos aidos in bodily form. That's exactly how the Spirit looked. The image was undeniable. So this imagery is it's referential. It's important. It's profound. And we're meant to see actually redemptive history coming to this climax in Jesus in this moment, just as the dove in Genesis 8 finally descended on dry ground, this new covenant has arrived in Jesus. Rescue has arrived in Jesus, the one who is being rescued in this moment, in some sense, through the symbolic waters of a new flood. And we're counted in that. The the dove descends on him to announce that a necessary death and rebirth has happened for all humanity and has arrived in Jesus or is arriving already in the prefiguring of his his death and resurrection on the cross and the empty tomb. In the story of the flood, Genesis 6 spells it out in no uncertain terms. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his hearts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. The story, however you choose to interpret it, the story of the flood, it makes two basic undeniable points. Corruption and abuse was total. We cannot imagine that. Humanity had devolved into complete animal wretchedness. The account doesn't allow us to sentimentalize or to make presumptions. It was worse than we can imagine. But the second undeniable point is this. The Lord God determined to preserve that which was still good. Very little. Eight people we read. Somehow he was was determined to do this by his own intervention, by his own judgment, and ultimately by his own love. And this is the story that's being invoked right here. Like the dove who's bearing the branch to Noah, the Spirit brings the same promise of rescue and of peace to and through Jesus. In Him, an everlasting promise is being established and fulfilled. 
And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, Jesus' own baptism, it makes the waters of our baptism a mediation, we might say, or a meeting, or a moment. I wasn't intentionally choosing M's. They just all happened that way. It's a mediation. It's this meeting place, a moment, a time, where you and I can, can enter, we must enter, into the story of God, where we receive the rescue. That's exactly where we receive the peace through a kind of rebirth in water and spirit. Because of Jesus, this becomes, this moment, this mediation, it becomes where the Holy Spirit and God's pleasure are uniquely present to us. And through, uh, and, and though the water is elemental and it's instrumental, it's the Spirit of the Lord who makes it personal and powerful. And this is what Jesus is walking through. This is what's happening in, it, in this moment. Even though he is without sin, he is going into the plight of humanity in this moment. And the second significant observation about Mark's brief account is this. The Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove, yes, but not without urgency and power. Latent power to do what? To confront temptation and need, to subvert chaos and corruption and to face violence and even death. So the power of divine peace is about to punch through as a proclamation, not a suggestion. Not for show, but for action. It seems that even as the Father's voice is still echoing in Jesus' ears and reverberating in his heart, the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. This is a violent word. This is an action word. Ekbalo. Mark is saying Jesus was pushed out of one moment into the next by the Spirit. Thrust, thrown, cast out. This is how this word is used everywhere. Matthew and Luke use this for launching a boat, shoving a boat out into the open water. Jesus is being acted upon by the Spirit. But why? Think about that with me. Why would this need to be how the Spirit is moving Jesus? Was Jesus otherwise reluctant or even resistant? Did he need to be driven? Was this a moment where his human will, not unlike Gethsemane, where his will would have otherwise taken the driver's seat or asked for a difference or a change? I've often wondered if Jesus even knew how long he would find himself starving in the wilderness. Whatever was the case, I think we're invited to imagine the understandable human reluctance to leave comfort, even to leave that proclamation of pleasure and to face the wilderness, to go where the wild things are, as verse 13 describes it. Here's Jesus, like so many of Israel's patriarchs and their prophets, being called into and through this unknown place for an undisclosed time. They and he must simply go. And I also believe that we're being invited by Mark to think of it this way. Be though it feels a bit like whiplash, there's the pleasure of God and then here's the pushing out of the Spirit, there's actually no seam between God's good pleasure and God's good purpose. There is no loss of His presence in the company of wildness. Not for Jesus and not for us. Jesus is immediately moved out into hardship and trial and temptation to be refined and to be strengthened and to be brought near for his unique calling in the world because God's affirmation 
of his beloved and the wild wisdom of his purposes, they are all one fully integrated urgency. Belongs together. Mark enhances the idea of this wilderness that Jesus is heading into with some more gripping imagery. It's a place that elicits a shudder if you're reading it. His first century readers who are remembering the bears and the lions that David faced in his wilderness preparation, or worse, Isaiah's Babylon in chapter 13, where it's howling, overrun with hyenas and jackals. It's scary. And various words are translated uh, almost 300 times in the scriptures for wilderness. But linguists, they'll make the point that the Hebrews did not have an exact equivalent of the contemporary English word wilderness. They used various things, but they were trying to evoke something. Undeniably for them, wilderness is a feeling word. Midbar uh, in the Hebrew or sometimes Arabah. Land that lies waste is chorba. Land without water is yeshimon. Here in Mark, the Greek word is eremos. They're feeling words. The obvious fact is that with this word and its history, there's a psychology. There's not just a geography. You can't separate this where you are from how you feel there, is what wilderness means. Or how you feel when you think about it, when you read about it. This is where Jesus is going. It's not the accessible wilderness, wilderness of REI or Sunrift, right? Of our buttoned up, well-worn trails and barely scuffed shoes on Parish Mountain, uh, Parish Mountain or even the immensity of Pisgah National Forest. The wilderness of Scripture means isolation. It means loneliness. It means desolation. It even means deprivation. At times, the same Hebrew words for wilderness are used to describe being bereft like a woman neglected by a withholding husband. That's how it feels in the wilderness. Or like anxious sheep deserted by their shepherd, stuck, where do I go? The psychology of the wilderness also and necessarily and intentionally provides a theology for us. Because over and over again, the wilderness is that unique place of confrontation and testing for God's chosen people, or a a place of stripping down to the bare truth again, where you can't deny it. It's where you don't really want to go, but you really need to go. Over and over, these remote places, these places of difficulty are where God speaks to and where he provides for and proves to his people. He exposes their lack of trust and he moves toward them in their fear. In their wilderness, in our wilderness, we face the stark contrast between God's character and our own, God's ability and our lack thereof. The wilderness has the unique power to ask this question, is God truly here? Can he be here in this place? Is he sovereign even over the wild and the withering realities and experiences of life? And we need to ask that. The Old Testament scholar Terence Fretheim, he puts it this way. I love this. He says, wilderness is life on the other side of redemption, but still short of fulfillment. Think about that. He says, in the wilderness, redemption seems ineffective. And fulfillment, only a mirage out there. The promise has been spoken, but who can live by words alone? The hope has been proclaimed, but the horizon keeps disappearing in the sandstorms. 
In Fredheim, he goes on to describe the effects of the wilderness. He says this, And so trust in God often turns to recalcitrance and resentment. Faith erodes with the dunes. Commandments collapse into the disorder that shapes daily life. And judgment is invited in to share one's tattered tent. The truth is, friends, we don't need Lent to remind us that life itself is so often a wilderness, that it feels exactly like being in between redemption and fulfillment. I imagine with the numbers of people in here, you feel that in so many different ways today. I have a mountain biking friend who's a non-believer, and his wife left him about six years ago. He's been on the dating apps, on and off. And a few weeks ago, he met a woman in Charlotte. And he thought, you know, they clicked both online and then they met in Charlotte. He drove all the way there uh, on a first date with a mountain biking injury on his face, by the way. But he showed up, went great. Two days later, she was trying to sell him on a multi-level marketing scheme. And when he didn't reply, she ghosted him. Or he didn't uh, agree to it, she ghosted him. And as we pedaled up the mountain, he just said, man, it's a wilderness. There are so many ways in which we feel stuck between the promise and the fulfillment. What we hope will be, what we dream will be, and where we are. What God has promised and what yet remains for us. We hope. We believe. We need Lent to remind us that, among other things, we live our lives as though our God really did take on the wilderness, the world as it is for us. He took on the struggle that he really did live between the unabating pleasure of God's love and the undeniable fact of the world's brokenness. Waiting. Trusting. By going into the wilderness, Jesus was in a very embodied and very spiritual sense. He was becoming Israel again, but not just for Israel in the wilderness, us in the wilderness. He became us, able to live between that redemption and fulfillment while holding on to the trust perfectly, while obeying perfectly, doing these things that are so fleeting for us, able to reject the lie of self-sufficiency that's just so easy to believe and so easy to trust, especially when it gets hard out there for a human. But Jesus was human in the wilderness. Jesus was fully human in the wilderness, living at depths of weakness and restraint and deference most of us cannot possibly fathom. But he was also God in the wilderness, remaining faithful and strong, doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The truth is, we would love for God's pleasure and God's power to simply provide just a type of equilibrium a linear path to our holiness and to our fulfillment. We get really disappointed and really despairing and resentful when times of trial come. We imagine that they are a cruel contradiction to God's love, but they are not. But as we feel the foreboding and the weight of the world, our purpose is to turn our fear and our anguish to the Lord in prayer. And listen, not in the abstraction of prayer for bad things happening to somebody somewhere, other people, or in the world, you know, but, but right in the middle of our own worlds, our own wilderness. It's there in the wilderness that prayer either becomes plan A or no plan at all. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I have, and I'm sure I will be soon enough. I don't know why it takes me so long to get to prayer as plan A. 
Well, I do know. I'm not Jesus. There's no getting around it. The gospel tells us that our Father's love is actively committed to our discipline and our transformation, not merely our comfort. He's committed to our personal participation in blessing the world, not our escape from it. Our stories tell us that we are loved, but also we are called as a kind of priesthood to live in the world that is also loved, but it's a world that's languishing. And our trial is instrumental in this work. It is akin to a kind of holy labor, being in labor for the world. Paul told the Romans this way, he said, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as children, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Ugh. <laughs> but he says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That is a wilderness of sorts, isn't it? Patience in the unseen, weakness in the waiting, life between redemption and fulfillment. As Peter once wrote, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. This means that our suffering in the world is part of how we experience our sacred union with Christ, and there is no substitute. The author of Hebrews wrote, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as his children. So friends, Jesus has not removed the wilderness from our world, nor us from the wilderness. He has come into it. And this is what we proclaim on the front end of Lent, knowing that he has succeeded through the wilderness, where we have so often failed and may fail again. Unless we forget, the angels ministering to him are our angels too. You didn't know that you were going to get a little tidbit on angels today. I'm not going to give you a whole robust angelology, but the author of Hebrews tells us there are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Just as they were with Jesus in that wilderness, they're with you. That's not, you know, uh, in place of the, the Holy Spirit, certainly not. But this is heaven with us. Suffice it to say, that time and again, God sent his angels to help his people in the wilderness. He sent them often to care for his prophets, to be messengers and ministers, to be guides, and even to fight what would otherwise be losing battles. I like to think about my angels. It's in this way God exercises his dominion over every square inch of the universe, even your wilderness. You may not believe in them, but they believe in you. And as this ancient calendar thrusts us out into Lent together again this week, should we follow together? We find ourselves embracing the wilderness again with Jesus, willing to be interrupted, willing to acknowledge in the absence or denial of hardship how comfortable and domesticated we tend to become in the world where we're actually called to be sojourners. We're actually called to be exiles. A priesthood, heralds of blessing, lovers of the good, instead of all the things we so easily become otherwise. Lent reminds us that the wilderness is not the final word. Jesus went, and in a sense, we can go there with him. 
because he is still our perfect obedience. He is still our perfect submission right there in the wilderness. We can face the wild animals in our own lives. The groaning of our own prayers, the honest doubts that send us drooling for easy bread and desperate for shortcuts. We can face it because the same spirit who drove Jesus out also raised Jesus up. That the same spirit will also lead us through and will, as promised, give life to our mortal bodies, not in a wasteland, but in an ordered and flourishing and joyous city whose architect and builder is God and whose, the, whose leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations and where every tear we wipe from our eyes. That's our hope. So we can go here these next 40 days because Jesus has been here. That's the only reason we can and it's the reason we should. Lord, we bless you today. We thank you for our forgiveness and our redemption. We thank you for what we have and what we await. We pray that our hearts will be fixed upon it. But first and foremost, fixed on you today, together again, as we open our hands and our hearts to what you have for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.